Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Friday, the 24th of February, 2012, and our special guest is Dennis Litke. Dennis, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Well, it really is truly a pleasure for us. Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, helping provide spaces for conversation amongst educators. And we appreciate the support we get from Blackboard Collaborate, providing this environment. Don't forget, if you're going to either the Q or the ISTE shows, we have the all-day unconferences, Q Unplugged and ISTE Unplugged. They're free. Uh, lots of other fun events at both those conferences, crowdsourced events. Please join us. Uh, they really are a lot of fun. This is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, and because of that, we started a couple of really neat projects. One is called Ed Incubator, helping small startups, especially teacher-led startups, um, develop a council of educators to help them with their projects. And also Classroom 2.0, the buck, soliciting your contributions for ways to use social media and Web 2.0 in the classroom. Coming up uh, conference-wise, we are going to have a Classroom 2.05th anniversary celebration. Uh, we are going to hold a gaming and education conference. Uh, the date of that is right as of now uncertain, but it will be coming. Alt-EdCon will be the alternative education conference, looking at homeschooling, unschooling, distance learning, anything that doesn't fit to our traditional concepts. Future of Libraries Conference, October 3rd to the 5th, and of course the Grand Global Education Conference, number 12th to 16th. Don't miss it. Five hours, five days, 24 hours a day, hundreds of sessions from all over the world. It's really a blast. Coming up on the show next week, David Weinberger on his new book, Too Big to Know. Then on March 12th, Mimi Ito comes on to talk about her work. Kathy Davidson on Now You See It, David Warlick. Um, Alec Koros on social learning. Lots of, lots of fun there coming up. I think there are some new ones at the end if you've been paying attention. Um, Khalid Smith from Startup Weekend has moved to a later date as, as had uh, has Ruth Sueli. Um, student branding by Christine DePaolo. That should be really a lot of fun. And uh, the CEO of Skillshare is going to come on. That's in June. Anyway, a good full schedule uh, through the summer. If you've missed any shows, they are in full recorded versions up on futureofeducation.com and also in MP3 format in a podcast stream. Alan Blankstein talked to us about the answer being in the room and um, providing processes for local schools to uh, improve what they do. Lorette Lynn talked about uh, unschooling. It's a lot of fun. Barbara Bray, Kathleen, Shannon talked to us about personal uh, learning. Uh, and Cable Green about open. So anyway, there's lots up there over 250 shows, so hopefully something that will be of value to you. Now you get to tell us where you're participating from. I've given everybody whiteboard permissions, which means to the left of this, the map you should see some icons. You're looking for the star, the second one down, and you double click on that and then you click on the map. You can also shout out in the chat. It's always fun to know where you're listening from. We have someone from Azerbaijan on Roseville, California, Vancouver, BC, Tempe, Arizona, New Jersey, Cincinnati, Sierra Vista, Argentina, Nashua, New Hampshire, Iowa, Rhode Island, New Orleans, BC, Azerbaijan, Providence, Nashville, Phoenix, Suffolk, Loveland, Colorado, Monica. Always fun to have you here. Wherever you are participating from, and for those of you who are listening to the recorded version, thanks so much for joining us. This show, Dennis, for me is a particular delight, and um, you, you've been very gracious to come on. I know you have a lot of speaking engagements, uh, and you're busy, but, but this is a personal pleasure for me, and I just want to express that again to you. Thank you. So it feels like in our discussions of education in this country, we have sort of two larger competing narratives. One is control and one is freedom. Is that too stark a contrast? Well, I don't like to look at it that way because it makes it too stark a contrast. Um, and it sounds like, well, free school versus tight discipline. And it's really... And, it, and it's not those ends. Um, deep down, 
You know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to think why are schools so hard to change, and it is have to do with that control. Um, so it's freedom in the bigger picture, but you know, if you come into our schools, they're not free schools. They're not you know do whatever you want. I mean, we try to help our students find their passion, find their interests, and they always got to be finding things, working on things, exploring. So the words are kind of are. are could be misleading, but uh, but deep down they're probably right. Well, I know as a parent, it's, it's sort of intriguing that uh, control is often a shortcut for me, um, and it feels as though uh, control or tests or measures can travel up the vertical or the hierarchical much more easily than do more nuanced processes. So part of what I'm hoping we'll explore today a little bit is kind of how you're managing the big picture environment with growth and expansion. Um, please feel free to respond. Yeah, well, um, you know, back to your first question. I mean, it, it, when, when we talk about discipline, it's not about punishment. It's about trying to understand how you use it as a teaching moment for both your kid and for the community that they're in. And so that's the difference. Uh, you as a parent, as you were saying, we often just respond. You know, let's punish, let's get this over with, let's change this. But it's really an incredible opportunity to look at it in a much bigger way. And so that's how we look at it. We don't, we don't teach discipline in the regular way because what it means for one student is completely different than what it means for another student. There was an example. Um, this one kid, Sarah, um, didn't finish her work. And so it was the end of the year, celebration, party, uh, going on a trip and she couldn't go. Another student didn't finish her work, but needed to be with the group that we felt needed the socialization. So you do something different for that kid, and in that one you make go in this group because that's important. So it's really about personalized decisions on how you learn from that. And it's so much about trusting um, the student, and that's that's part of that control thing that you brought up. You have to control if you don't trust. And what you've just described reminds me of so many experiences that those of us who have children have gone through, which is um, there is no fair. You know, in one circumstance, yep. one one thing is going right. to be different than another, and and how difficult that is. But it feels as though as we go through your material. You know, the part of the value that you bring to this environment and this culture is the transparency so that the kids understand, the students understand why and what the value of those decisions are and of their own importance as agents. Uh, you know, absolutely. I'm, I mean, are, are you done? Did you have a question? No, no, I was kind of, I was pausing yeah. to let you speak, but we can keep going. Oh, all right. Um, you know, it, it, it's everything's in that context, and everything's about a community, and and so it, it is. It is really. It's not deciding who did what. You know, it's really trying to work it out and mediate things. And when stuff happens that affects the community, uh, you know, if a kid messed up and did something like uh, hurt some property or was uh, smoking on the property or brought alcohol in the school, they have to go in front of the entire school and talk about it and apologize for what they did to the community and talk about it. So it's not this secret thing out there. It's tremendously transparent. You know, you belong to a community and you got to deal with that. It's not just about you and all our rules are kind of built around respect. So that just makes it so clear and, you know, our mantra is one student at a time. And so it is hard for a 15-year-old to understand why uh, Joe got one response and Peter got another response, you know, and we just try to say it's one student at a time and it's, you know, life's not fair, but this is what we think is best at this time for this student and this community. And, and as long as you're out front about that, uh, the kids uh, respond to that. So we kind of teased people in the announcement for the show that you were that you Dennis Lipke on schools with no tests, no grades, and no classes. 
knowing that that would elicit a response from a lot yeah. of people. Um, how did you arrive at this moment? What, 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 what's your history that brought you to a place where you felt comfortable kind of defining this new way of thinking about school? Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a piece for Dick Elmore's book, What You uh, a bunch of our uh, older uh, reformers, what I think now and what I used to think, and uh, coming out of Diane Ravitch kind of changing her mind on stuff. And I wrote that I really understood stuff in the seventh grade. I didn't respond to it, but I knew um, we were playing school. We weren't going to school. I did, I did my extra reports. I cut out pictures from a magazine. I was a good artist, made a nice cover. Didn't do anything but that and turned it in and got all A's because they were like these extra reports. And um, science teacher had us, you know, do these big posters. He was the hero of the school. They were all around the building. Kids copied them out of a book. So I knew that, uh, that it was a game, that we were all playing school. But I just got on to doing it like most people, except for the kids who dropped out. And I've been a principal in some, I'm trained as a psychologist. Uh, um, got a chance to build and create. I see one of my former teachers is on uh, a school at 27 years old, hired 25 new people, and really said, what should this be? You know, what should school be, and how do we do that? We created this beautiful school, Sean Wading River Middle School, and then I left and I took over a school in a rural area and trying to really change and built advisory and built internships. And then I came to the Annenberg Institute at Brown University and I'd been working with Ted Sizer. We were the first school in the coalition. And I didn't think I was going to be doing any other schools. I was going to kind of be spreading the word. And my commissioner asked Elliot Washer and myself to, uh, if we were interested in doing the school. And we boldly said, yes, if we can do it exactly how we want. Figuring, of course, he'd say, no, you can't do that. And he said, yes. He was a pretty out there commissioner and who had faith in my work in the past. And so Elliot and I really sat down and closed our eyes, honest truth, and said, if we didn't know there was such a thing as school, what, what would it look like? What would we create? You know, and we started with really what's best for kids. It's not supposed to be an environment to make us adults happy. It, it shouldn't be an environment that is making us learn something that somebody uh, 2,000 miles away is telling us to learn. Really, what's best for kids? What do we know? Uh, you know, learning theory, the way kids learn. And we knew, you know, it wasn't about tests. It wasn't about grades. It wasn't about going from class to class. That's not how we learn as adults. We knew it's about... Um, helping a kid find their interests, find their passion, put them out in the real world. Schools are crazy. But we put all the kids in this building and then try to make it real when the real world is across the street. And so if a kid's interested in computer, you know, wh why are we using back then in 95 our little Radio Shack computer when there's a brilliant... Uh, office building that has these amazing computers. Put the kid there working out. Put the kid in the hospital and working. Put him at a, at a vet's office. So that's what we said. And, and it's how do you know the kid well? So we said let's start with them in ninth grade and have a teacher stay with them for four years. Let's have a small group that really begins to develop community. And, and let's do a small, let's do a lot of small schools we have six here that each have like 150 students. Let's do a lot of small schools where everyone knows everyone well. And the other piece is that people try to ignore is the parents. They're the kid's first teacher. Let's enroll them in the school in the same way. So that's how we came about it. And we just started with 50 kids, I believe, and just, you know, once you get started and uh, we had strong design and philosophy, and then we spent those next years really um, trying to figure out what it meant in action. You know, what can a ninth grader do out in a, vet, a vet's office? And then um, our, our fourth year, when our first kids were graduating, uh, the Gates Foundation sent their top education man, uh, Tom Vanderark, to come to our school. And Gates at that time, I thought, handled this brilliantly. Rather than asking for proposals, 
They said, who's doing good work in the country? Who's been doing good work the last five years, the last ten years? You know they're going to continue. And they came and visited us. And Tom spent time talking to Ellie and I, really spent more time talking to kids, and then said, this is the kind of place where kids aren't talking about, I got a 90 on a test or I flunked the test. They're talking about, I am passionate about uh, 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 helping to um, cure asthma. So I'm working with a doctor in doing that. And so many of, of the kids' interests came out of things that were inside them. You know, this, this girl that was trying to cure asthma as a ninth grader, that's how she's talking. That's a different ballgame than saying, I've got to read Chapter 10. Our kids read books. We get real tested. They have to stand up for an hour every quarter and, and talk about all their work and show all their work in front of their classmates, their teachers, and their mentor. Whew. All right, I'll rest. <laughs> so, Dennis, to hear you tell this story, and it is a story, and you're very good at telling it, it just seems so logical. You know, we have uh, huge dropout rates. Uh, we essentially tell a good percentage of our students that they're defective. And you've provided an opportunity for them to um, see their inherent worth and to work on things of, of actual value and to be responsible. Why is this hard? Why is this a hard message for broader? Why don't we get broader adoption of this? It's uh, you hit it. It's my most frustrating part of my life. This seems so logical, okay? And and the results are there. Every kid comes to school. All the kids want to keep learning and go to college. What's so hard? You know, go deep on it. Chicksamahai, the psychologist, said the, the real way you learn to, be, to think like an adult is to study anything and study it deeply. We know this. You know, we see kids who are horrible in school acting up and they go on the soccer field and they're a brilliant leader. Why? Because they love that. So it's very frustrating. And I think, I, I was talking to someone yesterday and it made me think about this. I think it is... What's hard is to get rid of what we know inside us. It's easier to say, this is great. This makes all the sense in the world. But then you fall back. I often have people say, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And then, and I'm really happy. And the next sentence they say, what about chemistry class? And I take a deep breath and I say, okay, tell me something about your chemistry class. No, I can't remember anything, but I think everyone should have it, okay? So it's a, it's a kind of state of mind of this is what school is. And because everyone went to school, even though they might have disliked it, that's the only thing they know, you know? And I had a friend I was meeting with yesterday, and uh, I won't say in what area, K-12, college, whatever, but he was trying to get a program that was a little different okay. And I know the people. I know how thorough they are. I know how they've been working at it. They've been trying to get the right to do this program for seven years. And I go, wow, we live in a funny world. We don't live in this, in this entrepreneurial world that we think we do, that things can get started. People want new ideas. People are holding on to the old. And, and it's sad. Um, and that's why we just keep plugging away, and lots of people uh, will say to us, you're the only guys that actually stayed with what you believe in. We didn't like change our curriculum all of a sudden so we can match the common core or we could do well on the test score. We understand the importance of those, and our kids do well enough on that, but, but we, didn't, we didn't lose our soul. You know, for the last 17 years, we've been sticking with this and doing this. And we have, two weeks ago, we had our 50 pre, uh, principals from the United States together. And it's incredible to me. You know, I, I sometimes ask them a question, what are you willing to fight for? Make sure you know that so that you don't sell your soul. And when someone tells you to do X, you can stand up and really fight for it. And uh, it's people like that. And we have 50 schools in Australia and, and, uh, and the Netherlands that... You know, we just got to keep keep going, and I hope someday uh, 
and the technology is going to help it because um, now there's too much information that can be reached in better ways and quicker ways online. And so I think that access, that doesn't take away from the importance of the high touch, but that access is going to make schools change eventually. So we are seeing in the social media world kind of a shift in power, um, almost sort of a deinstitutionalization as people have, have voice. But for me, a deeper question would be, is this a case of reaching a critical mass adoption that would kind of turn the whole system? Or is it likely that this is just always going to be the secondary narrative, the, the more thoughtful narrative, and that you just have to make sure you've carved out a big enough niche that people are aware that it exists? Yeah. Actually, uh, I will compliment you. You're asking very good questions. Um, I don't think it will ever reach a critical mass. Would I love it to? Fantastic. Would I love our stuff that we've been doing to uh, be the, uh, the new regular stuff and somebody else to try and do stuff? That'd be fantastic. I'm not sure what happened. And I think Elliot and I knew that from the beginning. I think our goal was, so we never said we wanted 10,000 schools. You know, we really said from the beginning, and I don't know if we knew what we were talking about, but uh, we really said, let's get 100 schools and let's try to get them right, okay? And let's try to have people use our school. And they don't have to do the whole thing, okay? They don't have to do, we try to do it every second to follow this philosophy. But maybe people can start seeing uh, the value of different parts of it. Uh, we sometimes call ourselves like Intel, we're, we're big picture inside, you know? And I think our influence is to constantly be a model out there that is pushing the system, right? I don't know how long it will be till the system makes a change. Maybe it will happen. Um, but I kind of think we're always going to be a little bit on the edge. Um, we kind of call ourselves like the edge to the center. We're always on the edge, but we're all public schools. Most of our schools aren't even charter schools. I've been in the public school system for 40 years. So we managed to function in there and still staying on uh, the edge a bit. So, um, you know, sometimes I get frustrated how come, you know, they're calling X and Y innovation. I mean, I believe a lot of the innovation in this country is really just talking about scaling up things we've done. And I believe we got to go much further out than that. That's not real innovation. So. It feels to me as though uh, you fit kind of a classic disruption model which is that you serve a group that's been very poorly served, who are willing to look at alternatives, and, um, and for whom this is a, a great solution. Have, in your expansion, have you found those who typically we would consider having been well served, with an understanding of the irony of that, but uh, sort of uh, higher social status, um, maybe communities that, that have had more funding, uh, are there communities like that who are beginning to adopt big picture, and are there some lessons there for how um, the um, how you'd see that adoption outside of the the group that hasn't been served? Yeah, you know um, that's an interesting question too that we almost always talk about because a lot of times I talk about what is what are the things that we have to do um, that have the biggest influence. You know, uh, if you read your Oprah magazine uh, this month. Um, one of the actresses, Malin Ackerman, who's in the movie that came out today, Wonderlust, has one of these pages, five books that influenced me, okay? And one of them was my book. So who knows on something silly like that, not silly, but something like that, that could break things open, you know, versus having thousands of people come visit the school, what does that really do? So, uh, so we're always thinking about how to make that change bigger. And part of me thinks that we might have been smarter um, at the beginning to do as many schools with well-served kids um, because a lot of times the status quo looks and says, oh, you're doing those schools. Those schools are for the poor kids. Those schools are for the black and brown kids. You know, they can dismiss it. But all of a sudden, 
when you see and and we have people that are interested and people starting to come around. Um, one of the wealthiest communities in uh, my own state called me in to talk to a group of parents because the smarter ones know it ain't serving everybody. You know, at a private school in California and uh, in Los Angeles. You know, and I said, look around. I'm speaking to the parents. Look around the room. Look right. Look left. Would you like your kids to be working outside in the world with you guys? You got some power here. Let's do it. Um, last year, uh, uh, the headmaster of the uh, Quaker private school here um, had all the uh, the headmasters of New England Quaker schools ask me to come in. I thought that was pretty cool. There's a school they're paying big bucks to go to. And here I am, a little urban school down here. And they asked me to talk. So I think it is something that if it catches on with that group, it's, it's got more power. Because then the colleges look at it and it's got power. The low-income people look at it and say, oh, wow, if that fancy district's doing it, you know? Um, so it, it's, it's interesting. Maybe should have been a tactic. But on the other hand, my commitment in my life is to work more with the underserved. But I often think I should have found some people and say, go take this and build 100 schools out there. It may happen. You know, it did occur to me as I was reading that there might be a block of parents for whom, um, uh, who, who would say, I don't like this idea that my child gets classified as defective. And even though I'm in a well-served area, I'm just not happy with what's happening to my child. Yes. So tell us about what the student-driven learning environment looks like. How, did, how does the advisory system work? Uh, what's the curriculum, you know, or lack thereof? Um, what's, what's, the, what's the experience like from the student's perspective? Yeah. And, and I want to make clear, you know, sometimes I'm not the best marketer in, uh, in the broadest way. You know, when you say no tests, no grades, no classes, uh, that could give off the impression that there's low standards. They don't care about knowledge. I'm an incredible lifelong learner. That's what I'm trying to get our students to do. I just don't think, especially in our world today, there's any one piece of knowledge that everyone should know. And my friends argue with me, you should know the Constitution or know your health. But, um, you know, there's so much out there. And you've you got to keep learning. I, I did this figure once. Um, that we're in school from from five to say we get finished college twenty two, and that is nine percent of our life if we live till seventy. So I go, man, we better teach people to love to learn, or the day they get out, they won't be learning. You know, somebody did a study on valedictorians outside Chicago, and in the the year following college. These were valid in the year following. Um, no, it was a, it was ten years after they graduated from high school. That was it. They went and interviewed them, and something like ten percent had read a book in the last year. And we know they got all A's in English. Big deal. So that's my thing. So a day, a, a, I'll kind of describe a day. Um, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, kids are actually in a building. Um, we start our day where we bring the whole community together with something we call a pick me up which is kind of like a, uh, a school meeting, goes everywhere from if there was a problem, we may talk about it as a whole group. Uh, there are speakers that come in from the outside. If our students have been traveling or won an award, they'll come up and be honored. We honor each kid when they get accepted to uh, uh, college. And we do that for about 25 minutes, and everyone's together. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. I watched the other day in one of the schools. Every kid that came through the door, somebody stood up and hugged them. I'm going, oh my gosh, that's the kind of environment that you uh, that you want to develop. And then at and we don't start school till nine o'clock. Duh! All the brain research says high school kids' brains don't start working till then. This idea that people start school at seven thirty, yeah, they have nice quiet classes till nine. So we start at nine o'clock. Teachers come in at eight. Work together. Kids come in at 9, 9 to 9.30, they have this team meeting. Then they go back to an advisory. Every student gets put in an advisory somewhere between 16 and 17 students that they, be, they 
live with for the next four years. So in that group in the morning for about a half hour, they'll discuss things. There might have been something happened in the community that they discussed that affected them. There might be a current events that affected them they talk about. And basically the teacher, we call advisor, because they're really a, uh, a generalist and a supporter, um, they kind of go through and make sure everyone's got their week set. All right? And every kid has a planning book. And so the teacher would go around and say, okay, let's see. Let's go through your planning book. All right. Today, Jimmy, you're working on this. Uh, you're helping your nonprofit you're working with to develop a grant. That's what you're working on in the morning. Then you have a uh, 11 o'clock meeting, I see, with a grant writer. Then at 12 o'clock, kids all eat lunch. Um, and then, and then, so so then from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, every kid's working on these individual their individual work. Some may be working on a team together. Some may small groups together because they really need to do some statistics for their project. So I, I always said it looks like if you visit a, uh, a a great newspaper office, everyone's busy, small groups talking talking to each other, talking to individuals, and the teacher's going around and checking in with each kid. Then at noon they have lunch, then they come back and it's that same kind of activity that people are working in. And there are times during the week where we all, uh, we have book talks. So kids get together, we break it up, and they sit around with a teacher and they're all reading one book. They're also reading their own individual books. So that's kind of Monday, Wednesday, Friday. At the end of the day on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Kids come together back at 2.30. They talk about their day. They go through what they're going to do at night. And the homework is individual. It's not I'm giving you an assignment. Um, I'm doing a presentation at the hospital now. So I'm working on my slides tonight and my presentation. Um, somebody else has a rough draft of proposal turn in. That's what they're working in. So the advisor teacher makes sure that's straight. And then they go. We have extended day for ninth graders because that's the worst time to be in the street. So all our kids, uh, all our young kids stay till 5 o'clock where we have everything from writing to, to boxing to Zumba dancing. Um, and that's kind of the day. The, the school continues. We have parents coming in at night. We, our campus is open. It's in the middle of a not great area. It's got no fences. It's got no cops, and people use it all day. So it becomes a community center. And they're taking GED classes, or computer classes, or English classes at night. On Tuesday, let's assume it's a long process where the kids find an internship. They go and they shadow a lot. And they write back and forth until they find what they want. But once they find their internship, they go directly Tuesday morning out to their site. And, and as I said, it ranges from working at the airport to the hospital um, to nonprofits to MetLife, big businesses. And then the advisor that day gets in her car and sees four sites during that day. So actually goes and visits, sees the kid on the site. Every kid has a mentor, somebody there that they're working with. Every kid has their own learning plan. So every kid is like, you know, it's funny. Special ed kids and gifted have special individual plans. What about the 80% in the middle? Every one of our kids has a plan. We have our goals. Every kid's got to learn to read better, write better, think like a scientist, think like a sociologist, and then they work out projects accordingly. So. Um, a student's at a hospital, she speaks Spanish and English, she's working with the interpreter, that's what she wants to be. Um, and amazingly, our hospital doesn't have their materials in Spanish. That's a project she's taking on, okay? Um, so she's working with it, she's working with it back at school, presenting it there. You walk in the hospital, you see her project. It's real. It's not like, Oh, should I finish this tonight and get a C minus, or should I work real hard? It's real that that pamphlet had to go out there the next day, you know. And, and as I said earlier, a lot of the kids' interests and passions come from personal things that happened to them. We had a young man whose uh, uncle was shot and killed in a bar, and the person who shot him ran out of the bar. 
And this boy, young ninth grader, was so moved to, he, he worked the whole year to get legislation passed to have cameras at the doors of bars. He got someone to contribute to the cameras. He got some bars to sample it. He would go down to the legislature each year. So that, you, you can see, when you have something that you care about like that, you're passionate. So you work hard. You know, one of my kids one day said, I can't believe it. I was up to 2 o'clock last night working, and no one assigned me anything because it was his. You know, there's the boy, I'll give you one more example, who uh, uh, decided to study Vietnam. And I didn't know why he wanted to study it, but because our schedule is so flexible, kids can take college classes, too. They can go off. They see a good class. They take a class at Brown. They take a class at the community college. So this boy took a class in Vietnam history at a college as 11th grader, got a B-plus in it. He was helping somebody, uh, uh, a veteran, set up a memorial um, here in town. And I asked the kid one day, I said, Joe, what's your interest in Vietnam? And he had been reading about it, writing about it. And he kind of looked at me and he got real quiet. And he said, since I was five years old, I would ask my dad to tell me about the war in Vietnam. His dad uh, fought in that war. And he said my dad would walk away from me each time. Never would say anything. He said I asked him every year. And the kid's 17 now. And for his senior project, he took his dad back to Vietnam. They were both 18 at the time. His dad was 18 when he was in Vietnam. Uh, the, Joe Jr. was 18 now. He went back there with him. It was this incredible experience. His father opened the drawer, showed him all his, his, his medals. Uh, the kid developed a website. How do you talk to your father, your parents, about the war? You know, how can you not want to come to school? So that's why, to me, it follows with what you said. Like, it seems so logical, you know? But some people can't get out of their head that it means five classes. So I'm interested. You're a lovely storyteller, and it, uh, it's a great gift and a strength in what you're doing. And we're all enjoying it. I'm sure you tell the same stories over and over, but they're compelling. Um, one of the things I really loved about the book was the role of students in that storytelling or culture building. So uh, what is it that you watch happen as students get older in the school, and how much of the culture building load do they carry? Well, they carry it all. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there's that, that saying, unintended consequences. So once you've built that culture, and we worked hard those first couple of years, the kids take over. You can't control the culture. It's the kids. When a ninth grade, we had somebody visiting our school who was going to start a med school, a big picture school, and uh, he went into a ninth grade class. And he started asking, and each kid was saying, man, I got thrown out of my middle school. Oh, I hit my teacher. I only went uh, 90 days. And I'm sitting in the class, and these kids are telling the story. And I'm going, these kids are little angels here. What's up? You know, and uh, so the visitor said, but I didn't see any of that today. And the kids said this, and it was so cool. One of the girls said, I came in. I looked at the cool senior girls. I saw how they were acting, and that's how I acted, you know? Another kid said to me, we came to the orientation. I saw all the people with their arm around you. We don't do that to principals. That told me something about you. So it's that culture setting. The other piece was we have these exhibitions I told you about that, uh, uh, that the kids uh, uh, present their stuff for an hour on their work, and they're attended by other kids, and the other kids critique them. Well, having a cool senior go, I'm looking at your journal, Peter, and you know there's nothing in here. You better get you better get going. That means so much more. Okay, once uh, there was one of the schools, and they thought there was drugs going around. A couple of seniors said, "Can you guys step out? We're going to deal with it." That's ownership of your school. That's passion. You know, we usually have like one fight a year, and that's with between two ninth graders before someone tells them that's not what you do at this school. So. Um, it's about setting that culture from the beginning, and then, and then it takes care of itself. You have to keep working on it, 
and keep being respectful to what you believe, but um, that's a way to do it. And the other thing that I've heard kids tell me is they say, every kid has a story here, okay? And it's it's not, you know, I watched this kid uh, a couple years ago with green spiked hair and about 6'2", walking with his arm around uh, what the kid called himself a computer geek, a uh, five foot three little guy that wouldn't take his jacket off because he was so skinny. And they're walking with their arm around each other, and I go, that wouldn't happen other places. And they were in the same advisory, so they grew up together for four years, and they weren't competing in the same thing. The kid with the green hair was setting up bands in the downtown um, uh, place. The other kid was working with the head computer guy at the hospitals, so they didn't have to compete. They could respect each other and know who each, who each other was um, and, and, and be together. And so they can then say, you know, Dimitri's got his story. Kyle's got his story. Not one's better or worse. So that made me very proud. Dennis, how do you build culture, a learning culture, amongst the teachers? Um, the teachers are role models. Um, they see us talking to each other. They see us working. So it is very important. Um, I think half, half the game is hiring people who I really want to keep on learning. They don't see their job as, okay, I know my English. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to teach Shakespeare and I'm going to teach Byron. They're people that say, I want to learn every day. So one, you're picking for those kind of people. You're also picking for people that understand this stuff deep down. They may not understand how to do it, but they're really kid-oriented. I almost say it's like a kindergartner teacher's head with the kind of knowledge and the interest in working with high schoolers. You know, you've got to want to be in there. And even if, if, if your love is science, the kid could want to be working out at a hairdresser. The kid could be wanting to work out as a social worker. You've got you to gotta believe that your job is and you've got to want to help that kid learn in any direction, not just be a little professor and learn the science that I love. So part of it is um, selecting for that. And then part of it is we have a boot camp for new, uh, uh, new teachers. So one, they come in and we really spend a week with the philosophy, reading my book, talking about their own examples, helping to understand it. Then we bring the freshmen in the summer before so they can actually start trying these things and playing with this two months before they actually uh, have to do it. Then they have time off in the summer um, to continue to get to know their kids. Then all the staff come back every summer for two weeks we are learning together. You know, whenever I give a little talk in front of the whole group, I hand out books. Hey, did you read this new book here? Hey, I saw Debbie Meyer spoke on your show and Alfie Cohn. And so I'm always trying to enrich. And once a month, we stop school and we just work all day in creating um, new curriculum, new ways to think about it, because our school has been running for 17 years. And the design and the philosophy is still right, but what you do has got to change. And so we're always creating. Uh, actually, Monday, um, we're, we're in some financial, like everybody else, uh, tough times. And you can't just keep cutting, because then you lose your soul. You've got to say, now we have this much money. How do we still get what we want um, with that much money? You know, so I present the, the problem. If we were starting the school today, what would it be like? But we don't just sit. It's not just me and a few principals sitting and deciding it, okay? Starting Monday, we got three kids from each school, and we're putting them through this design thinking to have them recreate their school. They're the clients. Then we're bringing that to the teachers. Then we're doing two days with the teachers doing that. So we're always, we're always modeling that this is a learning environment. This is, you know, you talk about the teaching hospitals are the best. You know, this is a, this is a teaching school on that adult level. We have five to 600 visitors a year. 
they come in. So we're always learning and teaching, and and that's what we try to do. And you know that that's this is not the kind of environment where you go in your classroom and you close the door. I love the idea of the bio autobiography. Yep. And, and if you answered this, I apologize. But do you have your teachers write their autobiography? No, but that's a great question. You know, is uh, uh, we've had a few teachers that have done it with their kids, and just so. Well, the audience knows before any kid graduates, they have to write a 75-page autobiography. And they love it. You know, they can get as heavy and personal as they want. They can be as light as they want. Uh, they can capture their high school years. They can capture whatever years. But it's really a chance to, like, look back and, uh, and understand who they are as they begin that next part of their life. But uh, my teachers, uh, you know, won't be happy, Steve, but I might suggest that they all do it. And I'll tell them you suggested it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get in trouble. You get hey, a um, mail, but... Uh, we're we're going to move to the Q&A portion of the show. If you have okay. a question for Dennis, you can either put it in the chat or you can raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window. It's, it's a hand. And you click on that, it raises your hand, and I'll give you the microphone. While we're waiting for questions to come in, Dennis, um, I, I know this is a little bit of a technical question, but I'm curious as to how college admissions offices um, deal with your students, since they have um, narratives rather than grades, and they've been doing exhibitions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I didn't get a chance to really talk about we started a college, too. College Unbound that I'd like to sneak in. So if somebody out there asked me the question, like I hear you started a college now, that would be great. Um, uh, the colleges, um, well, things have changed also. Um, and what I say is, I, try, I say to a kid, if you want to get into a college, get an interview. Because then they blow people away. You know, They see who they are. We have a transcript. We translate our stuff to the transcript. You know, I'm not dumb. They're not Colleges aren't going to go through a, you know, 200-page uh, 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 portfolio of the kids' work. So we translate it. We know how colleges get, you know, thousands of applications and how they got to count things out and make sure, you know, they got the numbers. So we don't actually turn our stuff into grades because we do we do full-page narratives to the family. The kid does a narrative every quarter on their performance, and then we turn those into you know, we know colleges need to see four Englishes. So the kids have English all the time. We turn that into something that the colleges can read and understand. So we have no trouble getting into colleges. Uh, they get into every single kind of college, you know, from the Ivy League to the community colleges. Okay, we got a slew of questions that came in, not one of which was, I hear you started a college. Yeah. So let's start with that very quickly. I hear you started a college, Dennis. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. I'll try to do it quickly so other people can answer questions. So about four years ago, um, when I get angry at stuff, that drives me to be more positive. And if you're a first-generation kid going off to college in our country, I mean, you graduate high school, there's an 89% um, uh, chance that you drop out, which is really ridiculous. You know, and it's not the kids' fault if 89% are dropping out. So I thought I can reverse that. I can get 90% to graduate by, again, by same design, but just doing different things. So we started something called College Unbound in partnership with Roger Williams University, so, uh, which is a great liberal arts college here and, and uh, had some very uh, forward-thinking presidents that knew things uh, needed to change. We had another Southern New Hampshire University called and said, we want one there. And so we just started, and it's the same kind of thing. What's your interest? But it's just much more sophisticated. Get out there, do sophisticated work. And all our kids were graduating our first class. Everybody wants to hire them. They're not having trouble getting jobs because they've been working in the real world for four years. And I'm now doing the last thing I'll say. I've now kind of morphed it into adult learners. So. There's 37 million of those people who started school and never finished. And so we now have a program where you can be working full-time, going to school full-time, and doing projects around your work. So again, it's not running off Tuesday and Thursday and leaving your two kids with a babysitter and taking a class you're not interested. You're creating something that's very important to you and getting 
credit for it. So that's my spiel. Thank you. So Beth, I've given you microphone privileges to turn your mic on. You click on the talk button at the top left. Let's see how you do. Hi, Beth. There you go. Hello. Um, how do you get students started to get a school started like this? You've got cool seniors after four years who are who are helping to monitor the process. But when they start, the kids are coming typically from a model that is very much traditional and lockstep, I would assume, yep, unless yep. you can find a whole bunch of students nope, from somewhere else. So how do you get that school started so you get that culture built so that they do want to learn on their own? Yeah. Well, it's it's that's a great question. It, it's very hard to start, and and um, very important how you start. So from day one, the first day those 50 kids walked in, their first introduction was very different, and we were asking them, you know, let's let you guys develop the rules. Let's you guys. And all of a sudden, I had a kid who told me, um, in her eight years beforehand, she had never participated as much in the. In, in her school as she did the first day. So you got to just consciously be thinking every day, how do you develop stuff? Now, some freshmen really catch on. Others, it takes two years to catch on. But it's about that patience. It's about that, you know, you'll ask a kid, what are you interested in? I don't know. But then we have activities. We don't, we don't just expect people to be ready. So we have activities to help kids find out what they're interested in. We have job shadows. We say, okay, let's go out to five places and see what you have. So it's just being clear on what your philosophy is, what your goal is, um, and being honest to it. And a lot of the kids, you know, when we said, oh, this is going to be different, they go, yeah, I hear that every year. First, you know, my teacher says that. And so they test you and test you. And our ninth grade is always the toughest um, because they have eight years of doing stuff in another way. And they just say, tell me what to read. And we go, no, it's really you having to pick out what to read, you know? And it's it's this idea of playing school that one of the exhibitions, it was the final exhibition of a ninth grade girl, and she's, she's giving her exhibition, and her mom's sitting there, and she says, I read one book this year. And I'm kind of, as a principal, a little embarrassed. One book? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I'm kind of covering my head. And then the next line, she says, I had never read a book for eight years. She said, I read the covers, I read the back, I read the synopsis, never finished a book. You know, so we think that by assigning stuff, kids are doing it, but we have to wait her out. I'm not proud she read one book, but the next year she read 11. So it just takes time, and it's that, that respecting that we talked about at the beginning of the talk, um, and giving up the control and believing in the kid that it eventually gets there. Dennis, we have a good long list of questions here. I'm going to go through them quickly. In the case that we don't get to a question, uh, is there a public forum where people can ask questions about big picture learning? Um, I don't know if we really have a public forum to do it. Um, they could be writing me at my email, and I will respond to some, get other people to respond to them. Um, I think you could respond to our website, um, but we don't have like a blog or something that, that we could start the conversation with. So I, I would say as a start, go to dlitke at metmail.org and we'll work that out that we get people responding to it, okay? Because I'm seeing some of the questions come up and they're great. Well, we'll go as fast as we go. Sorry, go ahead. And the other thing is to go out and buy the book, and then you have all, you know, like Steve, you actually read it, so you, you have all the questions answered. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Lisa wanted to know, how do we fight to get public funding for schools like this? Um, well, I wanted to make that clear. I saw that question. We are a public school. We are, and uh, all our schools are public schools. So we got public funding, and uh, it's a matter of, convincing somebody of the higher-ups, and, and we're in 17 cities. So there's public funding from Newark to, you know, New Jersey to New York to California to Tennessee. So people are doing it. Not easy, but people are doing it. So it's just got to kind of really ask and 
say, hey, I want one of these big picture schools. And to go to your school board and say, can we have this model within our schools? And then we help people do that. Larry wants to know, have you done follow-up studies for success after the students leave, yeah. finishing college or the higher ed or success in careers? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we're one of the only public schools that really, um, you know, private schools do longitudinal studies and they keep kids so they can send the money in, keep the school going. We set up a longitudinal study because I said, I really care who our kids are at 30, not 18. Because these kids' lives are going up and down, and they're great for a while, and then and then they crash, and it's very hard to do. We haven't really had the bucks. We've been looking for dollars to uh, um, really follow up because that's the test. We do know that uh, that looking at the same demographic uh, from general data, that our kids are in college and finishing college like five times as much as the regular kid. Do we have enough great data? No. Uh, we had our first 10th year reunion. Um, you know, every single, every single kid that showed up, and probably about 85% of the kids showed up, were following their passion in some way, be it their job. The kid who was interested in music was still, he was being a real estate agent, but he was still in a band. So, you know, we're, we're trying to look for other criteria too, but uh, we've been pretty excited about uh, uh, what happens to our kids after, and, that, and that's what I care about. So, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of questions here because I think they're either answered in the book or they may be hard to answer in the next few minutes. Okay. So I'm going to move ahead to one. Uh, how do you transfer the type of learning you provided in high schools to lower grades? Um, we have uh, in Detroit and California and a couple other places we're starting. We have some elementary schools, and. You know, we have a few, we know how to do our stuff best in high school, but actually much of our stuff looks like a great elementary teacher who's really listening to the kids, asking the kids. Now, in our elementary schools, you don't have kids getting on the bus and doing an internship, but uh, in the lower, lower grades, they're, they're creating their own community and being a part of it. Um, you know, five-year-olds got a lot to say about what they want. Then they're doing more community service. So six of them are going to a nursing home and working. Um, so there are ways to do it. And it's just a matter of people saying, I believe in the whole child. I believe that a kid has to take control of their learning. Um, and, and how do we structure it? What does that mean? I mean, in that age, you've got to really make sure your kid learns to, um, to read and write and understand mathematics in a way to be able to spread that. But, it's pretty easy to pull it all together and make, make stuff real for a young kid. You also mentioned Reggio Amelia in the book, right? Uh, yeah. Um, you, you know, I'm just saying there are, you know, Reggio Emilio and some of Steiner stuff and some of that. They're all pieces of that that are going on. You know, how to make it real, how to uh, not just be reading about something but to feel something to do something. So I think there are a lot of pieces out there. And, and better uh, theory and practices around elementary schools, unfortunately, than there is around high schools and colleges. So, um, Radney, you asked a question about uh, joining efforts with Dennis. And I'm going to let you email him directly on that one. Uh, Thomas, I know I skipped your question, but I think the book describes that quite well. Um, there was a question from Joe about how long internships last. Um, we hope uh, they last a year, okay? Um, there are some kids, I visited one of our school kids that spent four years at the zoo in San Diego, and she's brilliant. Once in a while, that happens. Kids just know she wants to be a biologist, and we feel it can really grow. If a kid gets in an internship and it's just not right, we don't pull them out immediately. We say, okay, you got to stick it out while you're looking for another one. So um, I would say probably 75% go that entire year because we spend a lot of time at the beginning making sure it's right. You know, we don't just say, who wants schools? They go and spend time in schools. Who wants hospitals? And that's what we do. 
So our guest, we, we as a courtesy to you, we finish on time. So right. you're, we're going to stop there. I brought up the website for uh, Big Picture Learning, and I'll put the link in the chat. I want to thank you, Dennis, so much for coming on the show. I'm using the clapping icon. It's under the smiley face. Ah, oh, beautiful. Really appreciate your being here today. Thanks for taking the time. All right, and thanks for doing your homework. And it was actually fun, and I hope people enjoyed it. And uh, uh, send me an email, and I'll respond. Dennis, you're terrific. Thank you so much. All right, peace, everybody. Feel free to hang up anytime. Coming up on the show next week, David Weinberger on his new book, Too Big to Know. And then on March 12th, uh, Mimi Ito comes on, and then Kathy Davidson on the 20th. Really appreciate your being here. Thanks again to Dennis. Thanks to all of you for attending. Take care. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are in the world. Bye, Neil.